Harper, uh, you were on uh, Mike Kilf Brooks' show um, back in the uh, in the spring, and you made a kind of maybe half joking comment about how the way that governments had to coordinate and societies had to respond to it was with war communism. Uh, and yeah, it wasn't a total joke. Okay, it wasn't a total joke. So that's what I want to get into. So, no, so no, 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 sorry, not that there is. This was part of a joke. It wasn't a joke in the sense that I simply mean it seriously. In what sense? Can I go a little bit into half theory? Uh, many Marxists or even half Marxists Adorno pointed out that the crucial dialectical category of Marx is tendency, like when Marx speaks about tendential fall of profit. It doesn't mean profits will really fall, the rate of profit. It means this is the general tendency, and even if what effectively happens is the opposite, profits go up and so on, it's because the system reacts against this threat. And in a similar way, I think that if there is a lesson from COVID, is that even our enemies admit it, a tendency towards something like communism. For example, everybody admits it. We need to global, we need to universalize healthcare. We need to coordinate it internationally, internationally. We need to limit the market. This is why, if I may improvise a little bit, sorry, my this is why I wonder if you would agree with me. Please interrupt me at any point you want. Okay. This is why I'm getting sick and tired, although my model is not a Chinese one, of this. Whenever we mention that the Chinese did it, get under control the COVID, they add, yeah, but what price they paid? you know, like limiting human freedoms, whatever. I agree, but nonetheless, the Chinese did it, and the key factor was two things. First, as it is clear, even you remember when Trump uh, recorded an interview with Bernstein or who, and he even said that, that the Chinese president, Xi, already in January or when, warned Trump, that this is a deadly serious thing. So the Chinese took this crisis absolutely after the first weeks of the usual communist in power oscillation. You try to cover it up. But then they, when it became obvious what is happening, they immediately took it extremely seriously. And, you know, they didn't say, but our economy cannot sustain this market and so on. My God, they put almost the entire country into a lockdown. They were not bluffing. How do you know? You remember all those satellite photos of how uh, uh, the air pollution, the clouds disappeared, and so on and so on. Why did this happen? I don't want to repeat that form. But because, nonetheless, Communist Party is, was strong enough to say, okay, market is nice, it works, competition, but sorry, guys, now things are serious, we should suspend it. And they did, in this sense, the right thing. They had a, a lockdown for what, one month and so on, and now they are reaping the reward. You said yeah, something. People, people in Wuhan can go outside yeah, without masks yeah, and have parties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Do it the Chinese way, exactly. It's not even necessary. Take Taiwan, which is definitely not communist. But let's look at the few success stories. I will not talk about New Zealand because they are lucky, the guys there. They are an island and so on. But look at Vietnam, even Cuba, one has to admit it, you know. Taiwan, Chinese don't want to hear that. Uh, so what I mean is that it is possible, my God, to... And what I even read in some American uh, uh, business institute, totally pro-capitalist, they said strike with full lockdown when the numbers are still low. Chinese numbers are ridiculous compared to our numbers now. Because Chinese, all in all, had less numbers, much less than you in the United States get in one day now and so on. So it's crucial, this some kind of social control over economy, global healthcare, and so on and so on. Whatever you call it, these are this is a tendency, everybody admits it to some kind of communism. And what I'm saying, what I wanted to say is that all what is happening now, I found almost more disgusting than Trump's basically return to normality, this great reset idea, you know, which is they like the guy called Chris Galloway, who, who did the bestseller for New York Times, no? He gives, I was fascinated by his self-description. I didn't read the whole book. He gives a quite correct situation that Earlier, we had one to four, 20 to eight cent rich versus the poor. Now, the rich, the wealth is concentrated into 3%. Uh, we know the story. But then what's his solution against egotism and for love and empathy? How do you translate this? I think it's this new corporate masters like uh, Bill Gates and so on. And they are very important. They signal... Would you agree or not the change in today's capitalism? Because on the one hand, I've written about this a lot years ago, they for me, one has to be very clear here, maybe I'm economically wrong, but it seems to me the most obvious proposal, that people like Bill Gates, they didn't become as wealthy as they are because of the classical profit. It's not that Bill Gates exploits his workers more and so on. It's rent, I think. Right. All these guys, Bezos, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, they privatize what Marx called part of our commons. We are probably talking now through some Microsoft, uh, Microsoft software and so on. We order books and so on, many other things now through Amazon. If you have personal message through Facebook and so on and so on. So we, it's, it's paradoxically a return from profit to rent. Marx described the process of first it was rent, for example, a landlord, you worked, you paid him rent, then it was a commodification of working for uh, profit. Now we are returning to then, and this is to profit and, sorry, to rent. And this, I think, is what is, uh, uh, is crucial today to understand, again, these new figures, which are even, I agree with some people who said, almost figures of new, new, 
new new corporate wisdom. It's not only about COVID. Everything you want to know, there is always somebody like, uh, not so much Jeff Bezos as Bill Gates and so on, somebody like that to, to give some wise comment and so on and so on. They are our new aristocracy, as somebody said. And I think this is maybe the most dangerous version, this new form of capitalism, the Great Reset, where, if anything, the, the, the opposites, the, the concentration of wealth, the opposite between the wealthy one and the poor one, is, is growing, but it's crucial that this is or presents itself as what? You know, when I was young, we all dreamt about uh, socialism with the human face. Now we are getting capitalism with the human face. Bill Gates, the greatest humanitarian. But do you remember when Elizabeth Warren, she was not as radical as uh, Bernie, but nonetheless, when she proposed a tax plan, which would have implied a very modest rise yeah. of taxes, right. Bill Gates immediately protested. Oh my God, this is no longer capitalism and so on and so on. You know, this is, I think, the greatest threat. The big reset, which is not really what is needed, is these guys, like Bill Gates, they're not stupid. You know, Bill Gates even had a debate with Piketty. You know this. I did not know that. And, yeah, and said, I agree in many things with you, and so on. So they, they even at some point, Bill Gates, and I don't know who close to him, define themselves as some kind of socialists, you know, social, but if you look at it closely, it's not real socialism. It's just social responsibility of the truly wealthy and so on and so on. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, because I guess that gets down to what I was asking with the war communism question. Uh, Obviously, just capitalism plus, you know, social responsibility isn't socialism, but when you talk about what we actually do need or the level of control over over the economy that we need. I'm thinking here, for example, of an article that you wrote a couple of years ago after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected, where you said, of course, we should support these democratic socialists, but it's ultimately not radical enough. What we need is communism. And so I'm hoping now it's possible here that, you know, my academic background is an analytic philosophy. So one of the dangers of that is that I Really? Really? So I don't trap you. Who are your great guys? Whom did you like in analytic philosophy? You remember, she now disappeared from the scene, but naming and necessity, the of Saul Kripkit, even Donald Davidson was not bad. I have to, just to dispel this misunderstanding as a Hegelian, I, I, I like some type of analytic philosophy, I must say. They, they can be very, very, I, in no way have I this, standard European arrogance, you know, they are too positivist, they don't know how to reflect on things, and so on, and so on. No, okay, sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, well, I was going to say, though, I think one of the, uh, you know, possibly as an effect of that background, it's possible I'm being too pedantic and literal here, but I mean, I, I, you know, when you talk about, you know, communism, or, you know, we need this more radical break, uh, you know, <laughs> since, since you, you know, 
since you said earlier, of course, right, obviously you don't advocate like the, uh, you know, the Chinese model. And I think we can probably all agree that the the version of economic planning that, that existed in Eastern Europe and other places in the 20th century. Uh, that's over. Yeah, that's over. 20th century is over in the sense that that vision, that vision of communism, either it's alive in this pure historical curiosities, relics like North Korea, even Cuba, although, wait a minute, Cuba did pretty well with COVID, you know this. They only had a hundred, you know, I mean, look, in Ingham County, Michigan, where I'm from, there are 242,000 people and about 128 uh, COVID deaths. Cuba has 10 million people and only eight more than that, 136. So, and you you can say, oh, Cuba's an island, but Puerto Rico's an island and they've had terrible COVID rates. So, yes, but uh, you know what I heard from friends who knew Cuba? You know what they did? You remember if you, I was in Cuba, totally private visit, but I looked into it. You know, they, they had what they call these uh, infamous committees for the defense of the revolution. They control each of these committees, a couple of blocks, like if there's some dissident activity and so on. But now they use them in a very nice way to simply look over their domain and ask, so is there some old person there who needs help? Let's control and so on. And it's a very important lesson against the Chinese model. You need local control and initiative. I'm not a believer just in state, stronger centralized state. State has to be supported from beneath by local communities and absolutely by stronger international cooperation. So all this, for me, points against why communism, it's not just a joke for me to provoke people. Because, you know, don't you think that uh, uh, socialism is, okay, United States is a special case where the word socialism was prohibited till now. And that's what I like with Bernie and AOC and so on. If nothing else, they rehabilitated the term socialism. You are not immediately an outcast. You can use it. But I still have a problem in the sense that, you know, even Gates said, hinted that maybe in some senses a socialism. Socialism in today's moralistic age, is, isn't it more or less a term for some kind of social solidarity, uh, corporate openness, and so on. So, you know, like, you, you, the system remains the same, but you just uh, do it with a more human face. And so That's my limit. But in practical, pragmatic, political terms, I, of course, uh, I, of course, agree with it. And why, on the other hand, you know why I like to use the word provocative? I know communism. Yes. It indicates a real change, mm. radical change. And I think here, it's not, that's why I use the term war communism. Yeah. Now it will not be that happy, polymorphous, almost perversity that Marx imagined. It, there will be harsh times ahead. My God, I'm not taking this from some left lunatics, so-called, the more we learn about what experts are saying to different governments, like 
Now we learn that two years ago, some group of experts wrote a memo to Prime Minister, I don't think it was even already Boris Johnson, about what are the threats, two years ago or three even, yes. And they explicitly named virus as the first danger, the second one, global warming, and then way after all the China, Putin, or whatever, all that. So I think we are entering a much longer emergency period. It will not be now we get all vaccinated and then the summer will be normal. We don't even know how all this vaccination will function. There are already other strains of the virus, not to mention the real horror. I mean, uh, global warming, its effects. I think the way it looks now, if nothing else, it will come to tremendous large movements of the population. You know, millions will have to resettle. How to do this without war? In the past, this did happen, but usually through war, you know, you invaded another territory, Spaniards become cannot be habitated. But I think that today with uh, nuclear weapons and so on, we simply cannot afford this. So if I just very coldly and rationally look at our global situation with the view that it's not just COVID, mm. crisis will go on, Something for which I like to use the term communism, I allow others to use another term, which especially means practical global solidarity, not this abstract humanitarian type. But social control over economy and so on and so on uh, and will be necessary. And again, that's my point. It's a tendency. Those in power somehow at least feel it, and I think even ultimately, even Trump is a reaction to this. He saw, not as a conscious moment of planning, he saw new forms of despair, poverty. He guessed well the alienation from so-called ordinary people of the uh, democratic establishment, and he entered the scene with his type of populism. That's why now a confession to our viewers and especially to you. Okay. Sometimes I enjoy looking at that um, uh, 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 America war, war, Steve Bannon's podcast, because oh, yes. it's a big lie, of course. But to sustain his lie, he nonetheless points to many quite pertinent facts, you know, like he said that it doesn't really matter Obama-Trump, that even under Obama, this tendency of corporate centralization, rising poverty and so on, went on and so on and so on. This is, as I always repeat, the most dangerous by our enemies, the new populist left and so on. It's not when they lie. It's when they sustain their lie by partial truth. Yeah, I often, unfortunately, relate to our everyday experience. I talk too much. Please go on. I was actually going to say that last part reminded me. Uh, you know, one of the books behind me is uh, is one that I I co-wrote with Conrad Hamilton, Matt McManus, and Marion Trejo that you wrote an introduction to, 
that's uh, Myth and Mayhem. And I remember in the introduction to that book that you wrote, you said um, uh, you said the same thing about Jordan Peterson that the dangerous thing about him, you know, was 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 that part of what he said was true, and you know, and, and that that helped to. Uh, uh, you know, like that, uh, that, that he was more dangerous, you know, because of those truths, you know, that, that he was mixing in. But as far as Bannon goes, uh, I would like, I think that Bannon certainly points to a lot of actual problems. Yes. I think it is remarkable how thin his, his solutions are. Right. So like for, so there's a, uh, there's a podcast called Red Scare that had Steve Bannon on as a guest a few months ago, and a lot of people were very upset at them for having him on because they're... Is this the two girls from yeah, yeah, yeah. Belarus or Ukraine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, was there. yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yep, that's the one, right? And so lots of people were very angry at them for, you know, for giving a platform to this horrible yeah, family. Yeah. But this, the thing is, I loved it, right? I remember Michael Brooks pointed this out mm -hmm. at the time because it was a great interview because they, instead of just sort of yelling at him for being a bad person like most people do, they yeah. asked him a really simple question, which was... Uh, you say you're a populist. Why don't you support Medicare for all? And and it, it you know he, it was just so obvious that he didn't have a good a good answer to that, right? You know because so much of his rhetoric depends on all of this stuff about very real things about corporate power and economic yeah, inequality. Yeah, yeah. But but his the policy solutions you know aren't really there. He says, uh, oh, you know he wants to deconstruct the administrative state, which sounds sort of scary and sort of radical and oddly. It's kind of a scary, scary Derrida. Derrida returning as a monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what does that actually mean? That deregulation doesn't mean, you know? It's, it's, it's at the very least, it's very unclear to me. But as far as your your long term solutions go, right? So you said you want, you know, you like you prefer the word communism because socialism has been defanged. You talk. Yeah, but I'm, I'm flexible here. I think people, the message should get to people that it's not a joke. It's, you know, I, I, that's one of the few moments when I wouldn't say I liked Trump, but I felt, although with that person, I don't think he has really an ego, a self-decent yeah. personality. But, you know, when you could hear, you know, Bernstein, when he, he even played that recording, how you could feel that Trump was really impressed when he, the Chinese guy, uh, told him, sorry, this COVID, this is not a joke. It's damned serious, you know. So uh, here I agree totally with you to avoid a misunderstanding. Okay, one good thing I'm ready half to say for Steve Bannon is that but then he made a compromise immediately. You remember before the elections or, and before he was uh, thrown out of the White House, yeah. he nonetheless, one must say, he advocated raising taxes to 40%. Yeah, that yeah. was yeah. one. But on the other hand, when he says under Obama, concentration of wealth went on, well, okay, but even more under Trump, Okay, Trump did elements of, under quotation marks, socialism, basically already some version of universal basic income, giving these checks and so on and so on. But, you know, it's obscene how most of the money to support business and so on to survive went to big corporations, often on a political basis, went even... Some of my Catholic friends in the United States laughed when they learned, did you know that Trump gave 800 millions to the Catholic Church? 
to survive the COVID. And my friend said, this is wonderful. We will now be able to repay all that we owe people for pedophiliac cases. (laughs) So, no, it's absolutely a lie. I know. But obviously, and again, sorry if I repeat myself, I've often often, uh, wrote uh, uh, about this, but uh, 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 Bernie Sanders saw this clearly. Our, more than this typical Biden obsession, who will cover the, the center? We should occupy the center. No, let's not move too much to the left. We will scare the center. We should at least here learn things for, from Trump, don't you think? Trump did exactly the opposite. And he even consciously alienated much of the Republican establishment. And we should learn the same, I think. That the way, that's why, among other things, let's not go into it in detail, Hillary won. Hillary lost, sorry. She was obsessed precisely by this. That's why, if you ask me, I worry very much about the future. I, I'm not against uh, Americans as people. It's a great nation. They did, my God. How can you hate a nation which produced great Hollywood classics and writers like Dashiell Hammett uh, or uh, Ray, Raymond Chandler and so on, you know. But uh, Trump will screw up things so much and leave behind problems that how will Biden cope with it? I hope they will succeed somehow to prosecute Trump or whatever. Because I, I think so. I mean, like, it, it, it seems like we, we never, you know, prosecute uh, former former presidents who have committed crimes. I mean, Nixon. Yeah, no, I, I said I hope. No, I don't believe. <laughs> okay. I think it's a minimal change. And so this is, you know, I wrote a text which was very marginalized. But, you know, now I love this as a philosophical problem, this I connected it to that barber paradox, you know, which yeah. was already used by Russell. You know how a barber who shaves only people who don't shave themselves, can he shave himself? Right. Whichever way you turn it, you are in a paradox. And I tried to apply the same on Trump. A president who pardons other people, can he pardon himself? <laughs> and so on. But it's uh, the sad thing is, and you may disagree with her, but here she made the point, Angela Nagle, no? Mm-hmm. The thing she said, nonetheless, correctly, I think, is how this new populist right, they behave in the form of their behavior, not content. They behave in this pseudo-subversive way as once the radical left did. And here, now, what to do? You will probably not agree, but my crazy solution is what if we adopt, or at least to a point, the language of moral majority? Mm. No, not that, Nixon moral majority. Look, when I had that unfortunate debate with Jordan Peterson, and afterwards I spoke with him for a couple of minutes, and he admitted to me privately that there... He doesn't have a good answer to my point. I said, okay, tell him, Jordan, okay, you're against postmodern historicism, relativism, irony, and so on. Wait a minute. Trump is the absolute postmodern historicist, relativist president that you have. 
Right. You know, it's typical Trump's answer to one of those right-wing groups who call for violence, no? They ask him, uh, what's his stance towards them? And he said, no, they love America and they like me. That's what matters to me. He didn't even enter, you know, this topic, but is it right what they are saying? So I think that I would risk this. It's a risky move, I know. But to say, sorry, we understand you if you are an ordinary, even Christian guy, believer. Sorry. No, Trump is the ultimate relativist, decadent, postmodernist. And that's what I like about Bernie. If there ever was a common, decent person, it's him, you know. And this is an important element. I think this is also why, for some time, Jeremiah Corbyn was doing well in the United States. Now, this was totally, it's here, a state school against him in the Labour Party. It's horror what happened there, you know. But what I want to say yeah. is that I would shamelessly yeah. address also this, what Nixon called uh, uh, silent moral majority. Yeah. Bernie knows this. It's crucial to get them. To tell them that no, this new right, Trump, these are the true nihilistic postmodern decadence or whatever. So so I think there's morality in, in two two senses, right? So one one is like being like moralistic policing of individual behavior, which I kind of think we have too much of on the left. And I think that especially with the pandemic, you know, some of the obsession with like yelling at people for not wearing masks and things like that is probably unhelpful. But then uh, then the other part is is moral critique of, of institutions, saying it's morally outrageous that there are people who lose their health insurance during a pandemic, that there are people who are hopeless. And I think Bernie Sanders is very good at that, at, at, at sort of channeling that moral outrage at the um, you know, at the workings of the American economy. Yeah, and this is what I would call effective critique of ideology, that uh, we have an outrage, but <clears throat> how we experience this outrage depends yeah. on ideology, how we channel it. Here it's the, here it's the key trouble, which is why, again, as people wrongly think, my problem with political correctness, it's not, it's moralism, it's that it's a fake, false moralism, you know, this apparent extremism. It's just a cover for very compromising stance when you really look at the details. For example, I've written about it, you know, which is for me the most disgusting example. You remember how easily a big co corporate company, when they catch some of their usually minor or mid-level executives, making a racial slur or whatever, sexist remark, with all the pomp in the media, they discharge him and so on and so on. And what then? They nominate another guy and then the same system goes on. In the same sense, there is something like, I call it ironically, in a very brutal way, corporate feminism, you know. Mm -hmm. They think that all that matters is that, okay, we name to the top position a couple of women. Nice, but the system remains the same. It, this, is where, this is where we should uh, refocus, in a way, you know. And again, I think that 
for me, precisely what many people perceive as a danger, new populism and so on, and even this panic with Bill Gates and so on. Now everybody wants to be some kind of a soft humanitarian socialist. It is a panic on their side. They are aware that the tendency is towards some kind of I call it, sorry for the term, communism, although, uh, again, yeah. it's in Marxian sense, a tendency. It may yeah. be Marx, Marx says the same. The, the actual effect of the falling rate of profit may be that the reaction to it will be so strong that the profit rate will even raise more. I mean, not, yeah. nothing yeah. is predetermined here. Yeah, I... So, well, okay, so first of all, just a parenthetical note, uh was uh, happy and surprised to hear you mention the uh, uh, Barber Paradox. I actually, uh, you know, you asked me about this earlier. My, my, uh, my PhD dissertation was actually about logical paradoxes, so that's, that's, uh, that's man and me. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but as far as... Really? Oh, my God. Did you print it? Did, did dissertation? Uh, no, it's actually being adapted into a book that might come out next year. I, I can send it to you if you want. But more to our topic, so that we don't lose time. You know what interests me? What okay. was your basic... So I hope you didn't buy a Russian solution, which no, is no, no, no. through this classification into different levels, you can get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, which which actually I liked. Uh, there's a uh, there's actually a graphic novel called Logic Comics about Bertrand Russell and Russell's paradox and all of that. And there's a good mm-hmm. line in there where they're talking about Russell's theory of types and they explain it by using yeah. the Barber paradox. And they say mm-hmm. that uh, you imagine a caste system where people can only shave people in the caste above them. You'd have a very hairy uh, lowest caste. But no, I didn't. Uh, I, I don't buy that. I think that um, you know. I, I mean, I, th- I think basically that you can have like different versions of set theory that uh, that don't, um, you know, that have different axioms and uh, and none of them are actually describing something that that really exists. Uh, but in any case, I'll I will I will send it to you. Okay, I, don't sorry, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to get too far off, but yeah. as far uh, but but the reason I was asking about communism wasn't really about what we call it. wasn't really about terminology, but about you know I know of course that that Karl Marx famously said that he didn't want to write uh, recipes for the cookshops of the future. And I think I understand why he said that, but I think that uh, heretically, I, I do disagree with Marx about this. I think we need to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. Very good point. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm always a bad guy. I'm a leading part of paradox. <laughs> you know why it's important to say this? Because uh, people praise this, as you see, Marx was not a dogmatic and so on. I'm almost, almost, it will be very brutal, but say, uh, tempted to say, yes, that's why uh, we had Stalinism then, you know, because Marx left it so abstract. But one thing to say for Marx, uh, 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 none, uh, nonetheless, uh, he was not uh, naive here. He was open to history. For example, Many subtle readers of Marx noticed that till the Paris Commune, mm-hmm. he was much closer to a traditional centralist notion. Strong state, as in at the end of the Communist Manifesto, a strong state will centralize bank, will, uh, will uh, nationalize banks, big industry, and so And Marx was, in a positive sense, surprised, shocked by the Paris Commune. said, my God, this is the first time this new forum. And although... Lenin then changed his position. But you know, when he wrote, 
not only state and revolution, but even in the first month of, Alain Badiou told me this wonderful detail, of uh, October Revolution, uh, I think that Paris Commune was in power of Paris, of course, for two months. You know what Lenin did? It was winter of 1917, uh, I, I think, was it December, already January, when the uh, Soviet power survived longer, one day more than Paris Commune. Lenin went out and danced on the snow there. Like, you know, much more than, I don't know what, he considered himself the heir of the Paris Commune. But it's very important what you said. I think this problem with uh, Marx, um, it's not just a simple failure. Many theoreticians, pro-Marxists, but critical of Marx, notice that I really, Balibar has shown this and others, that Marx didn't have a good, proper theory of political power, authority, how do these things reproduce themselves. And that's, we know more than ever, we, sorry, we know we need today. Because here, I think, as I write in my volume two of Pandemic, which you can order it, but only a sprint of demand. It will be out in a month or two in bookstores. <laughs> You know, usually we had leaders with dignified masks, and then you have obscenities behind the mask and so on and so on. But Trump introduced a new logic where, you know, we don't need a child who says the emperor is naked. Trump proudly displays right. his own nakedness. Right. <laughs> and the mystery is, nonetheless, he retains his authority. Right. And this is what we should analyze, how authority can survive this radical, how should I call it, disablimation or whatever. How leaders today can even make fun of themselves and so on, appear ridiculous. It even strengthens sometimes their executive power. We have new forms of authority today. It's no longer the traditional authority and it's Typical how <coughs> in the West we went further here. Well, Chinese remain classic here. Yeah, so, so, so I do want to get back to the communism question, but I think what you yeah. just said is interesting because um, it seems like in Trump's case, really actually a lot of his connection with followers is, is followers is based on this the, their impression that he's just giving this constant stream of consciousness, you know, expression of his thoughts and he's often openly extremely petty. And, and, and I think that all of that seems to make them identify with them that much more yeah. because they feel like they have some kind of human connection with him. Yeah, well, what, you know, it's important here that when direct charismatic or not even charismatic, this classical dignified authority began to disintegrate, we get experts. We get people who say, no, it's not me. I'm just telling you what science or economy or whatever or the law tells me. And now this repressed dimension of the master is returning with avengers with people like Trump, who is no longer the old master with some dignity. And here I agree, maybe you will not agree with me, with a figure like Alain Badiou. 
sorry, Vitalem, but you could point it out that let's not dismiss masters generally. Sorry, what was Nelson Mandela is not a great master figure. What was Gandhi is not a great master figure. And I still believe that there is an authentic, I try to describe it in some of my books, an authentic figure of the master who is not telling you what to do, but in a way, that's how you experience an authentic master. Through him, through his inspiration, you discover what you really want. And that's what great masters do. Okay, with Mandela, it didn't end well. It was clear, although it was that no, he had okay. to do that compromise. Although, it, didn't, it didn't, right? I mean, the, the end of apartheid was one of the great victories for human freedom in you know, the 20th century, but they also had to compromise on all of their economic programs. Yeah, but they're paying the price now. You know what? I am afraid that now that economic situation is getting... It's not a total catastrophe, but a little bit worse in South Africa, that they will fall into the Mugabe trap. Mm. Instead of changing the system, let's blame the white, but keep their own new wealthy class untouched. Because my friends are telling me in very simplified terms, in South Africa, basically what happens happened is only that the old white ruling class was joined by a new black ruling class, while the majority of black people remained more or less at the same level of standard of living. Okay, more freedom, no direct racist uh, oppression, but don't underestimate this. Much more crime, violence, and so on and so on. And here, I just think again that uh, Expertise is not enough. You need an inspirational figure of a master. We, and from here, we should attack Trump. The problem of Trump is not that he is a master, but that he is a clownish, ridiculous comedy of a master. I don't know who a good analyst wrote. I quote somewhere that uh, Trump is not a dictator. He's somebody who plays dictator on TV. <laughs> no, I, remember, I remember Matt Taibbi had a great line when, um, a, you know, a few weeks ago when a lot of liberals were um, were fainting about the idea that Trump was gonna was gonna have a coup. You know, there was a point where like he got yeah. Fed Secretary Mark Esper and people were saying, "Oh my God, he's staffing the Pentagon with his personal loyalists." Yeah, be- yeah. And Matt Taibbi said. Uh, you know, it's not the, that Trump would morally object to a coup. It's that two minutes into planning it with his generals, he would get bored and wander off and have a burger and watch TV. And and that, that seems, you know, that's, yeah. you know. But. You see, that's why, although I don't underestimate the danger of Trump, I never liked this quick, short circuit Trump a fascist. It's a totally different structure. You never get a fascist which openly behaves in such an obscene way, making fun of himself and so on and so on. It's another type of authority. It's. Uh, I also don't think my uh, uh, Israeli friend Yuval Kremnitzer uh, uh, developed this nicely. How I don't think that Trump really wanted to overthrow democracy. He, it's true, he did seed distrust into established, ritualized democracy. He did flirt with this 
people pow people's power, not ritualized uh, election, all the committees, procedures. But nonetheless, she never made this step of, okay, let's be a fascist and really take power, because I don't think he really had a determinate plan. He just, he lived in this in-between area of, uh, 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 of uh, 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 criticizing the corruption of the system, like, and here he sometimes almost sounded as a kind of a leftist, you know, our democracy is not really representative, and so on and so on. But he never really wanted to overthrow it. I didn't think, I don't think he had this uh, potential, if you ask me. Do you think that... No, really no, no, I, I don't think he did at all. In fact, I don't even think that when he ran for president the first time, uh, I, I don't think that he... Uh, I don't think that he particularly even wanted to win. I, th I think that he, uh, I think that that he wanted to be in the spotlight. He, he you know, he probably wanted to yeah. get, uh, you know, to get better TV deals and so on, and that uh, and that he was enjoying the the experience. But I mean, he he didn't. Yeah. Uh, I, think, yeah. I think he was more surprised than anybody was when he won. But I want to bring on uh, Amber yeah. Amber. Uh, hi. Uh, Hello. You hear us? You okay? Yeah. I can. Yeah. Thank you. It's time that we would be accused without you, Amber, we would be accused of some kind of a male binary patriarchal logic, you know, we need, we need Well, you. I just got here, we'll see how it goes, so. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. You want to brutally intervene? Absolutely. That's the only way to Please. intervene. Sorry? It's the only way to intervene, brutally or not at all. That's a nice Marxist lesson. I see that Marxism is not lost in the United States. Thank you. Please. Uh, so you are the boss, Ben. You yeah. direct us uh, now. Yes. All right. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I do. I do actually want. And by the way, Slava, I, I hope you come back because in a future conversation, I'd really like to try to drill down into your uh, recipes for the cookshops of the future. You know about communism. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, but I should. But I don't have a precise recipe. My, you know, when people ask me, what do you mean by communism? My idea is: look what even when conservatives are in power, are forced to do now: distribute billions, which is not founded in any market logic, and so on. Now people then tell me, okay, this is just to go through the crisis. Yeah, but this crisis will not disappear in two, three months. You will have to go on, and it will go on and on and on. And something will have to happen here. Either, again, this great reset with a totally controlled society, which I think all this bubble idea, you know, we will live in isolated bubbles. Yes, maximum 40% of us, the 60% will still stay out and so on. I mean, you know, to whom did I dedicate my pandemic volume to? You know how many countries are in the world which are heavily hit by COVID, but their situation is so horrible that they don't even think about it. COVID is a minor threat, like I read about Yemen. It's under terrible COVID inflation of cases. But sorry, they're in a civil war, they have many more problems, it doesn't even enter. We should never forget this, that COVID is, as it appears now, maybe there is some historical just 
justice in it. Not so clearly, but more or less the problem of Europe, United States, Canada, and maybe some parts of Latin America, where nonetheless it's getting a little bit, a little bit better now, because I noticed even how our classification of COVID, first wave, second wave, is Eurocentric, basically. Latin America had a totally different rhythm, and so on and so on. Sorry. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and... And I and I guess you know thinking about you know you were talking earlier about what Cuba has uh, has done to to contain you know COVID yeah. with you know, committees for the defense of you know the revolution yeah. uh, and and all of that and and I think that might tie into what we were talking about earlier about about the difference between that sort of uh, what you talked about as the moral majority in the good sense like Bernie yeah. Sanders uh, and and moralism right you know because because it seems to me. That again, the, so much, especially of, of liberal discourse about uh, mm -hmm. about COVID, uh, is purely about uh, about culture war. You know, about about whether you you wear a uh, you know whether you're wearing a mask or not. You know, as mm -hmm. as, as like a symbol of uh, of individual virtue, uh, which is a which is a good place to uh, to invite Amber to uh, brutally intervene Please. in the conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I was thinking about early on when I was actually. Um, in the sort of early COVID uh, days, and I was interviewing um, an old, like, uh, like nightlife legend. I, I won't call her old or whatever. In the sort of like drag queen scene, and she had been a big Bernie Sanders advocate, and she had also, you know, as a gay man, like lived through AIDS. So she was suddenly seeing again people being terrified of other people. Mm -hmm. And it reminded her, she, she doesn't really care about pronouns. It reminded her of being a gay man and, and you know, narrowly avoiding this, uh, you know, terrible disease that killed all of her friends. Mm -hmm. And more troublingly, it was the, um, the sudden presence of people's fear of one another that yeah. sort of brought everything uh, to, to a head. And there was so much animosity about it. And it was like, who is putting people at risk, who is putting people in danger. And there was very little attention played to, um, uh, for example, what how Reagan was responding to it, or in the UK, the same thing with, with Thatcher. And uh, she said one of the things that she saw happening again with COVID very early on was people would be taking pictures of like 14-year-old kids playing basketball together without a mask and would be like, you know, look at these assholes not wearing masks. And she's like, mm -hmm. what? Why she said it's an excuse not to look up. It's not to look at the people who are in charge of managing these sort of things. It's very easy for us to look side to side now and try to police because we don't actually have any broad institutions that we have any faith in. So we look side to side. We look at our neighbor and that's the person who's the problem. We don't look at the people who ostensibly are supposed to be um, managing the crisis because we've just lost any idea of what that could be of what that could even look like a long time ago. No, I deeply agree with what you said, uh, uh, because incidentally, in my country, Slovenia, it's exactly the same. Government in a very unpopular, stupid way, protecting business, uh, orders some measures, and then if they don't work, 
the people are guilty, you know. They yeah. didn't obey and they never asked themselves. And so it's, it's, it's horrible. But you know what worries me a little bit? I don't know if it's the same in the United States. It's not simply what they call the COVID fatigue. It's that now retroactively, maybe this is a retroactive myth, in, uh, at least here in my country and parts of Europe that I know, uh, uh, March and April appear compared with what is going on today, almost as a kind of a healthy panic, you know. We were just afraid of COVID, we have to quarantine and so on. But now something very strange is happening. At the same time, uh, relaxation, even if, for example, in Slovenia now, numbers are 30 times three zero higher than they were in April. But nonetheless, people go around, they meet, even if it's prohibited. It's a kind of a relaxation, but it's a very uh, desperate relaxation. It's not so much fear as depression. People don't see even any perspective. And even if they engaged in not so much sexual as socializing orgies and so on, it's always some despair in it, like, let's enjoy it as long as we can. People, I mean, to ask two Americans, that makes a lot of sense. Because for Americans, I mean, I think with the American, like, apocalyptic yeah. uh, uh, sort of uh, Protestantism, I mean, that's just, that's, a, that's a, apocalyptic hedonism, I think, sets in after a while. That's a nice term. Did you invent it? About uh, apocalyptic yeah. hedonism. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful term. Because that, that's the problem with this... Uh, I once said that, uh, wrote that uh, uh, apocalyptic visions, the situation is too serious for apocalyptic visions, as they put it. We cannot afford them. The terms we should, maybe you know that line of mine, I love to repeat it. The best formula I heard was way back from Chile. We know when this apocalyptic uh, visions began to predominate. You know what was their formula? No. It's not the end of the world, but we want a different, better end of the world. <laughs> Let's not play this uh, democratic establishment game. A little bit of patience, which also Trump plays. Things will return to normal and so on. No, a certain world is coming to an end and we have to work hard to construct a new normality. And it can be done. I think one of the things we have now is that um, the sort of dominant liberal discourse, which has positioned itself as uh, the moral discourse, mm. on oh, yeah, yeah. Um, they have absolutely zero ability in tone beyond either smug or hysterical. And not only is the hysteria completely alienating, but it actually, I think, I think it undermines the actual urgency of the situation because the thing about panic is that mm. it's rarely ever warranted. There's rarely ever a reason to panic. Yeah. When there is a reason to panic, that's when you definitely need to not panic. Yeah, so yeah. under no situation is someone claiming to be an, a moral authority ever, you know, lending credibility to their own leadership by running around hysterically. But that's basically what we have. Um, and I, I really don't, I mean, I see the anti-mask protests and, you know, it's like, you're really taking your lives into your own hands. But I, I 
absolutely see where it comes from because uh, it's disgusting seeing these people walk around just, again, also the people panicking tend to be very, the lowest risk. They have a home, they have a yard, they don't have to go to mm. work. So it's it's extra um, ridiculous coming from them. You're not seeing, um, you know, uh, nurses or, or, you know, people who work at grocery stores exhibit the same degree of hysteria as someone who now teaches, you know, Zoom philosophy classes at the new school from at home. Um, and yet those are the people that are sort of adopting the tenor of someone who is actually in danger. Um, but it's, it's, there's no room for it in this moment. There are these two poles. There are the, you know, sort of the broader skepticism of it and sort of the oppositional defiance to um, all the prescriptions for safety, mm. which I think are inevitable. You can't judge them. Yeah. Yeah. They're inevitable. And then there's these screeching hysterics um, who have no solution to the problem other than personal responsibility and uh, shaming and isolation and um, smug self-importance. And those are the people, of course, that believe it's the end of the world and that scream it's the end of the world. And it's like, well, then why Then why would anyone do anything? Yeah, if it really is the end of the world, then apocalyptic hedonism would be appropriate. Yeah, then let's get drunk. Yeah, yeah. but I don't think it's the world. Yeah. It's very bad. It doesn't need to be the end of the world for us to intervene and to do something. Right. No, but I, here I try to, maybe I'm, wrong. I try to give a, a positive spin to it. Yes, but every, first, this end of the world, you know, it will drag on and on. It will never end. That's the first paradox for me. You know, did you notice how history was was supposed to end and then this end just drags on and on and so on? I yeah. think that no I would like to... Sorry, please. No one told me that yeah. Yeah. But it's one interesting point. Maybe somebody, I don't know who told me recently, even on a podcast, maybe uh, maybe Fukuyama, who began this story of end of the world, do you know, is it true or not? Isn't so bad? Somebody told me that now he changed his position and that he supports Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. He advocated for basic like welfare interventions and also just recanted his entire proposition. He was like, oh, apparently there isn't an end point. Nothing is fixed, which I think, I mean, I applaud him for. Like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. once you see history happening again, you can't stick your head in the sand. Um, it's not yeah. the history that we wanted, but, you know, in some ways it is encouraging because the future is not written. And and that yeah. is yes. So that's why you said something wonderful. If I may to engage my professional corruption into a kind of philosophy, rather playing with terms, do you have it in English? I don't think you do. In French and other languages, we have it. There is a wonderful distinction between two terms for future, future and avenir, but they're not the same. Future means just what will come, but it can be the same. For example, if Trump were to win, he would be the present and future president. Uh. If you say avenir, it's to come. What will come after? It's a change. Trump will not be the president to come. He would be just the same. And I think the problem with futurologists and all people that panic and so on, that 
they consciously, it's a kind of perverted structure of pleasure, reject to think this to come, a new beginning. It's really perverted enjoyment into this. I'm stuck at home, I watch old TV movies all the time. They basically, in a very perverted way, enjoy, enjoy this situation, I think. And it oh, absolutely. Yes, no, I mean, they don't feel pleasure, but they can feel glee. It's very yeah. perverse. Um, I know. I was in Lacanian. I agree with you. You know, for Lacan, in, uh, enjoyment is pleasure in pain, not direct pleasure. Never asti- uh, underestimate, underestimate how people, when they have to renounce some pleasure, can draw enjoyment out of these rituals of renunciation. For example, my British friend, psychoanalyst uh, Darian Leader, pointed out how these rules that are imposed now are a paradise for obsessional neurotics like me, incidentally. You know, like, you don't have to worry, how should I greet you, what are the forms, everything is preset, how you lock your elbows or whatever, you know. Another thing that I often repeat, I would like to repeat it here, would you agree or not that uh, it's not as simple as it looks with this uh, 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 social distancing. It's really only bodily distancing. Socially, through the media, digital media and so on, we are probably more socialized, more connected, more controlled than ever. For me, the problem is... Sorry? I, I actually, I just wrote a, uh, an article uh, about sort of Twitter activism, and there was this moment where it's like, we are closer than we have ever been socially, and we are lonely than we have ever been. Uh, because those things aren't necessarily the same thing. But definitely, we are we are breathing down each other's necks, yet there is no intimacy. Yeah, yeah. Um, very good formula. And what I am afraid is, is precisely this tendency, this type, new type of social contact, I fear it much more than isolation. I mean, often, I feel almost a need to be authentically alone. That's what I mean. That's what I miss now. <laughs> it's crazy, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the uh, so the article Amber is talking about uh, it's called the uh, the problem uh, with hashtag activism, uh, and it came mm. out I think in Catalyst uh, like a couple months ago. I'm, I'm mm. uh, exactly the kind of strange nerd who'd like keep a copy of Catalyst in the bathroom and you know like read through it all the time, you know and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it was yeah, re- I'm with you in your intimate moments. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was, uh, but it was reprinted uh, recently uh, in uh, in Jacobin, uh, and 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 in it, Amber. And by the way, I should say, Slavoj, I, I really hope you can, you know, you can stay and talk to us for a few minutes. I know it's getting late in in, in Ljubljana. Do you have another ten minutes or so in you? Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yep. Uh, so. Okay. Uh, that goes. Yes. Yeah. So in the uh, in the article, Amber, you talk about h- how you know the the article's written as a as a review of a book about uh, about Twitter activism, uh, you know. But the larger mm-hmm. thing is that it feels like we 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 can very easily be involved in these activist efforts to change the world on online, you know, with with these kind of viral hashtags and things like that. Uh, and and there's all this stuff that's been written in celebration of this and, and how amazing it is and how participatory it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what seems to be left out of that is that none of it ever seems to work. Yeah. Um, and even the authors themselves, the examples they use, 
I mean, uh, you know, the Greek referendum vote, uh, Occupy Wall Street, uh, the Arab Spring, um, nothing worked. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work, but there's so, you know, it, they're, they're so pleased to see activity. Um, and the idea that this might be a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing is irrelevant to them. Now, I, I wondered if uh, for a while that they thought that they had succeeded at these things or they considered them mm -hmm. or they considered them. You know, I couldn't figure out why when they would say, well, what about Occupy? Didn't 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 uh, Twitter do Occupy? And it's like, well, first of all, no, it didn't. I think the financial collapse of 2008 did Occupy. Yeah, yeah. Twitter was a, 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 a tool used in that. But also Occupy was not successful. Um, and then I realized basically, I think in this kind of academic slash activist world, which is, you know, since the cultural turn and the decline of, of the trade union movement, at least in America, has supplanted um, working class politics, their definition of what constitutes success does not resemble mine at all. And I remember this specifically being at Occupy in Zuccotti Park. Um, uh, someone was saying, well, you know, I, I want to make sure we get results from this. And this is when we were arguing about whether or not to have demands. And I wanted to have demands. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have demands, as I often do. And someone says, but what we're doing right here, right now, is doing something. And somebody raised their hand and they're like, look, I just want health care. And that is how most people experience politics. It's supposed to be a means to an end. I don't need a community. I'm not an isolated middle class cul-de-sac born, you know, PMC track person. Mm -hmm. I already have friends. I get involved in politics and activists because I want people to have fucking health care. Um, so I think ultimately the problem with sort of like hashtag activism or online activism um, isn't so much the use of the tools, but it's the fact that there are no politics undergirding them and there are no institutions that are steering these things. Um, I think the fact that it's very diffuse, that it's very, I mean, they, they, they emphasize all of this stuff. It's the kind of post-Marxist spontaneity and the crowd and, you know, the, the, the strike is dead, long live the ride, all of that silly bullshit. Um, but it's represented very much by and, and facilitated very much by the way um, social media functions and what it is capable of doing with activism is generating more activism, not generating power or building institutions or or certainly not, you know, affecting change in the world. Right. I cannot agree more with you because some people dismiss me as, I don't know, secret right-wing when I repeat that I'm sick and tired of this, you know. One million people gathered on Syntagma Square or I don't know where. We were all in solidarity, tears, unique moment. I'm saying, okay, but the morning after, you know, I, I'm very naive here. I think the real result of a radical movement is how ordinary people will feel the change, if any, afterwards. And this is why, for example, what really depressed me is, did you see it? I don't know where, in one of the big media, Guardian or CNN, I read a report on Tunisia, the hero of 10 years ago, 
the Arab Spring was a guy there, a fruit seller who uh, self-immolated. Yeah. Immolated himself and now streets are named after him. But the family is now so hated that they had to move to Canada, you know, because for all, okay, there is more freedom now. They got these liberal freedoms. But as one of them said, we didn't fought, didn't fight just for this. We fought for dignity and work. Work or whatever that gives you a chance of dignified life. And it's, it's even, it's even, worse now. And this is why I don't think this, on the other hand, I hate people who are pseudo-radicals. Many of my friends say, Syriza, it's nothing. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. I tell them, okay, what then when you do? Wait for a big, authentic revolution. This is... And I think the situation is totally hopeless. What do you think, for example, about Bolivia? They showed something. They won, they were re-elected because as Lucio Arce said very nicely, look, we are not giving you empty words. Ten years, for 10, 12 years when I was finance minister, you never did so well. That's why I think there had to be coup at the time in Bolivia. It wasn't another Venezuela or what. They did it moderately, but with a clear line. They didn't screw it up. And that's the real thing to do today. Bolivia has a cultural and political memory of wins, uh, of winning. And I think one of the problems that is compounded by like the you know, the, the kind of onlineification, the depersonalized mm. activism is the fact that we have no generational memory of wins. And the wins that we are taught about are yeah. mistaught. So, then, as you said, would, sorry. Yeah. I would say maybe the, the civil rights movement was mm. one of the last, you know, truly successful coordinated moments we had. Now, right now, that's taught, um, you know, even in sort of like the, the the liberal theology, if you will, is is all of these people got together and they held hands and they marched on Washington. Yeah. Never mention the degree of, of uh, trade union influence and of labor coordination that went behind this so that they actually had the muscle Yes. Uh, uh, fact, uh, that's important, what you said, because people forget that when he was shot, Martin Luther King in that city, he was on a tour to support a combined black and white worker strike. Yeah. Yeah. He, he got much more radicalized. Yeah. 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 If you actually look at pictures of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and it's bad enough, like the erased, like it's bad enough that like we literally like have have erased the memory mm. of the jobs and you know part of that. Uh, and you know, look, look, look am I the, going too far now? Uh, am I going too far now, or would the two of you agree at least a little bit with me? I've written about it. I fully support LGBT plus and so on and so on. But it looked to me a little bit ridiculous. In the summer, when Trump was gaining, in the summer of 2016, or when, when Trump was gaining strength for the campaign, you remember, before Trump occupied the space, the big topic on uh, front page of the media was how to solve that toilet problem, you know. 
so that it will not be binary. Should there be asexual toilets? Should there be? It was madness. There was a revolution forming right wing, the wrong one, and you had these high theological almost debates about three toilets, uh, all toilets, no toilets, or whatever. I mean, I'm fully for LGBT and for theoretical reasons. You know, I just don't like when it totally obfuscates this world. I don't want to spend spend the entirety of the political discourse arguing about where we have to shit. That's that's a waste of my time. I mean, also, to me, just being a, a purely pragmatic person, I'm like, you know what? Make every bathroom a stall. Everyone enjoy problem solved, remove the conflict. Who cares? Um, don't turn it into a battle. Just, just yeah. every, everyone benefits from a private bathroom anyway. Who gives a shit? But I think it had more to do with demonstrating what side you were on, what your political identity was. Yeah. That's the that's the terrible thing that I think has developed and has been exacerbated by this sort of online stuff is that like politics has become a moral identity rather than a means to an end. It's are you the good guy? Are you the bad guy? That's absurd. People have interests. People have concerns. People do have morals and values. But the whole point of politics is to wield them in such a way that you shape a world that is that looks the way you want it to look, that functions the way you want it to function. Would you agree then, Amber, with me? Uh, uh, I'm seriously concerned with this problem that some of this, your criticism, holds, I think, even for a certain type of popular middle class ecological movement. For example, I have friends who always buy organic apples and so on, all that stuff. And I always, to provoke them, tell them, do you really believe in it? That those apples who look more rotten, but cost much more, much more than the mm-hmm. uh, genetically modified, they, and they want, some of them were honest and openly told me, no, but it makes me feel good to be part of a big thing and so on, all that to do, to show solidarity, to do something for mm-hmm. Mother Nature and so on. That's why I repeated this line many times with my books, but I find it. That's why for me, the supreme ingenuity of today's capitalism is what they're not doing it so much now. What Starbucks did years ago, the message was uh, Our coffee is a little bit more expensive, but 1% goes to save Guatemala children, the other percent. So that it's an ingenious move because in usual morality discourse, we are split between being consumerists and then working for common good, and they are offering you a wonderful formula. You pay a little bit more, so your social duty is already commodified, it's included in the price. So you can easily enjoy your coffee. I would go one step further than that. Um, As far as you are not supposed to even think of yourself as a worker, but, um, you know, as a part of the Starbucks family, I remember working for Starbucks as a barista during the time when the CEO was fighting tooth and nail to prevent us from getting health insurance. Mm. And not only do they tell the consumers of Starbucks, like you're, you're being a good person, you're saving the world by drinking this coffee, which no one really believes, but they want something with people are very desperate. They told us training as employees that we were a part 
of, uh, of an ethical, moral company and the, that we were contributing to the Starbucks mission and the Starbucks agenda. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. they weren't fucking paying for our health care. So it's there's there's like three points in which you're being told these are the ways to be good. And none of them are politically effective. And all of them yeah, depend yeah. necessarily from a working class political project. Well, well, it goes back to your point about hashtag activism that, you know, people who say things like, oh, you know, we Occupy was a great victory. Just the existence of Occupy was a great victory. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing with the uh, ethical consumption for Starbucks or sure. when people when people say that they um, – you know, like like my favorite lib thing is is when people say, "Oh, I'm not going to buy that. I'm boycotting it." And I always think, "Well, well, do you yeah. know what a boycott is? Right? Like you, yeah, they know it. Workers call boycotts, and most people don't understand what a boycott is. That that's like again when I talk about how we have no memory of winning, we also have no memory of like what these words even mean anymore. Um, you saw this with like there was like a one day strike called by Amazon and people were like, I'm never buying from Amazon again. It's like, that's not what the workers are asking for. This is not actually about you. You're supposed to be acting in solidarity. Solidarity is another word that's been debased beyond. It's, it's basically like namaste or love and light now. Solidarity yeah. implies a shared risk that you are taking on with someone. Yeah. It required. Yeah, that's why, would you agree? I'm also very skeptical. That's for me the ultimate horror of today's uh, humanitarian corporate capitalism. This obsession with well-being, you know. You should be all protected in, in educational institutions. You shouldn't be too... My God, for me, good education means it precisely uh, takes you out of your bubble and teaches you how to confront the brutal reality. No, now you should be guaranteed that you will not be disturbed in any way and so on and so on. Now, some friends who defend this well-being protection tell me, but otherwise you can be traumatized. No, if you live also in the academia in such a bubble, you will be really traumatized. Then will be a crisis when you enter the real world, no? Right. It's never the people with the sort of like eviscerating trauma that tend to be the hysterics. I mean, it's 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 never the people who are like, yes, I was a child soldier. It's uh, it's always a thing that you know. I'm sure it was troubling, but I, there was a, there was a developmental psychologist I think that said uh, the best way for a child to grow up is a series of uh, small but manageable traumas. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And I even think that uh, uh, that this is always also the source of true creativity. You are, you, you are traumatized, which means the coordinates in which you were living are shattered, and then you have to think, to invent, and so on. I think that not only trauma does not prevent you thinking. We, there is no thinking, real thinking, without a, at least, a, as you put it nicely, a moderate trauma. No? I mean, the impossible model is the most obvious one, where the actual way you literally build physical muscle is by damaging it, and then it rebuilds itself stronger. I mean, it's a heavy-handed biological metaphor, but yeah. like, yeah, a little bit of measured consistent trauma is good obviously yeah. horrible things happening to you can be eviscerating but like now you're supposed to engage with difficult things you're supposed to you know like uh you're supposed to challenge yourself things are supposed to be difficult you're supposed to be sore and exhausted and that makes you better 
Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, I uh, so I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to continue this until anybody is, I'm is sorry. in fact. Uh, is in fact sore and exhausted. We can, I, how do they say in California style? We can repeat the experience if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just Sorry. got here, so I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I just. Uh, but you can continue with the lady. I leave, and then you can say all you wanted against me. You are free. <laughs> never, never. I never say anything behind anyone's back. Uh, I only say it to their face. Ah, you know what's my worst humanitarian joke? I, when I'm caught saying somebody something against somebody behind his or her back, my excuse is, but I'm a war human being. I cannot hurt you. If I say to you face to face, it will be offensive. So I'm sorry. Out of my humanitarian spirit, I'm only saying it behind your back. <laughs> Very kind. Very kind. <laughs> very kind. Very kind yeah. I like it. It's uh, the Zijak theory of shit talking. You heard it for here first. Uh, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate this, uh, this Slavoj. Uh, this, this. But do Slavoy. some cutting of me above all. Yeah. No. Censorship. Yeah, and and we'll we'll cut it all in extremely misleading ways. Make it seem like you were saying things that you weren't really saying. You know. So so. That's my idea. That's what I like. Did you see? I want to repeat this case. Did you see that movie, The Thin Blue Line? Where a guy says uh, to get an you know, to get a guilty person condemned, every average prosecutor can do. To get an innocent person condemned, you need a really good prosecutor. Not so. That's what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you much. I can. All right. Fair enough. Thank you so much. Sorry. How do I go out? Oh, and, I will. Uh, I have a time. Although you know that here in Slovenia, it's. Much worse. We are a nation of two million, which has between one thousand five hundred and two thousand cases per day per capita. We are, we are at some point the worst in the world. So, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, yeah. That's.